Lord, as the undefeated champion of love, may the Spirit of God who was given to magnify you do his work in these moments. May we seek Jesus, our Lord and Savior, together, and we pray in his name and for his glory alone. Amen. It was Napoleon Bonaparte, the 19th century French emperor, who said, and I quote, I know man, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have found empires, but upon what do those creations rest? Upon not our genius, but our force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. So said Napoleon Bonaparte. Jesus Christ this morning and every morning is beyond all comparison and is absolutely compelling. Daniel Webster, an American statesman, orator, and lawyer, was once asked in the company of literary gentlemen. He was asked if he could comprehend how Jesus Christ could be both God and man. Webster answered, and I quote, No, sir, I should be ashamed to acknowledge him as my Savior if I could comprehend him. If I could comprehend him, he could no longer be greater than myself. Such is my sense of sin and consciousness of my own inability to save myself that I feel I need a superhuman savior, one so great and glorious that I cannot comprehend him. End of quote. Jesus Christ is superhuman. He's God and man and so great and glorious that none of us can fully comprehend him this side of heaven. Back to Napoleon Bonaparte, another quote. Quote, I die before my time and my body shall be given back to the earth and devoured by worms. What an abysmal gulf between my deep miseries and the eternal kingdom of Christ. I marvel that whereas my ambitious dreams of myself and of Alexander and of Caesar should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and nations. End of quote. Jesus Christ, friends, is eternal. He is without a beginning and he is without an ending. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he controls your destinies. I start this sermon by conveying these quotes because I want to end this Palm Sunday sermon having called you to a new and to a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. In today's passage, the creator of every single human eye used his own two created eyes to see three things. Three things. And these three things inform us about Christ's power and about Christ's character. The Lord Jesus is still seeing these same things this morning. What are the three things? Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 17 will be our Palm Sunday focus this morning. Let me orient you to the passage before we read it. The action takes place on the Sunday prior to the Friday that our Lord Jesus was crucified. And in less than one week, Jesus will die 
for the world's sins. He knew it, and he was on his way to the city of Jerusalem. And now as we jump into Mark chapter 11, let's start by reading verses 1 through 3. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You shall say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. The first point in our sermon this morning is this. Jesus Christ sees the future. Jesus Christ sees the future. He looked ahead into that particular Sunday and he saw the future in vivid detail. He saw a village. He saw a cult. He saw a questioning bystander, and he saw a conversation, all future to when he said it. Jesus Christ sees the future in technicolor, in high definition. Jesus Christ sees the future. That's what it means to be eternal. When you don't have a beginning and you don't have an ending, the future and the present and the past are equally vivid to you. What a savior. We can and should trust well-trained medical doctors, but MDs don't see the future. We can and we should rely on financial planners, but investment counselors, they don't see the future. And we can and should listen to godly pastors, but we don't see the future. The only person who perfectly sees in a vivid nature the future is Christ, God, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They see the future. And this amazing God, in great mercy, wrote us in his Bible so that we could know some very important facts about the future, but we cannot see all the details of those facts as much as we would like to, as God, omniscient, sovereign, can. Jesus Christ, your Jesus Christ, sees your future. He sees the future of the Bahamas. He sees the future of planet Earth. Christ sees the future. We don't know what the future may hold for us, but we know who holds our future. And that's a great comfort to know that your loving and powerful Lord Jesus Christ sees your future before you live a day of it. And so trust Christ. Don't tremble over your tomorrows. Don't tremble over your tomorrows. Trust Christ. Not surprisingly, Jesus' two disciples found their future to be exactly as their Lord saw it beforehand. Verses four through six. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. Jesus Christ sees the future. There wasn't a detail in that story that Jesus Christ missed ahead of time. 
There wasn't any need or aspect that needed correction. Jesus Christ sees the future in high definition with 2020 vision. What a savior. Verses 7 to 11 give us the second main point in this message. Jesus sees the fanfare. Jesus sees the fanfare. I see this in verses 7 to 11. And they brought the coal to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Must have been quite a scene. A parade route with only one person in the parade. Must have been quite a scene. Jackets and palm branches carpeting the route, shouts and spectators and joiners in and hangers on, and great, great political anticipation. Beth and I have walked the road that Jesus rode down on that donkey on the triumphal entry, down the slope of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, a cobblestone road to this day. On his left, as Jesus rode down the hill into the city, was the largest Jewish cemetery in the world at Jesus' time. And guess what? It's still the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. And so the king of glory, being ascribed adulation, respect, for political deliverance, riding down on the colt, down the hill into the city where he would be arrested, illegally tried, sentenced to death, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. When Jesus came down that triumphal entry cobblestone road on the donkey with the world's largest cemetery on his left, death, Visually, death beside the parade, he knew. Did you know that on the top shoulder blades of every donkey, God has made them that they have darker bristled hair in the shape of a cross in their shoulder blades at the front? So as the Lord Savior came down that triumphal entry road, down into the Kidron Valley with the world's largest Jewish cemetery on his left, he looks down perhaps at the colt's back and sees in darker bristling hair a cross. No detail in scripture is insignificant. Quite a scene. Palm branches back then were national symbols for the Jews. They would wave palm branches as they did for Jesus' parade as a symbol of fanatical heartfelt nationalism and patriotism, much like we as Bahamians will wave the beautiful Bahamian flag to show our patriotism and our loyalty to Bahamaland with the stripes that are aqua for the sea and the stripe that is yellow for the sun and the triangle that is black to picture our progress together as a people. Much as we would wave Bahamian flags, the people on this parade route wave palm branches for nationalistic hope, for nationalistic pride. What a scene it must have been. 
And when they shouted, Hosanna, it meant save now. Hosanna, save now. That's what it meant. The question became, save from what? Simon the Zealot, one of the 12, wanted political deliverance. Judas Iscariot, who was a fake believer in Jesus Christ, he wanted to be saved, but not from his sins. He wanted to be saved from the boot of Rome on his throat. Save now. Hosanna. The coming kingdom of our father David was cited, should be understood as Messiah's literal future kingdom that we still look for. But too bad, all that is loud is not lasting. Four days after the majority of those who yelled Hosanna yelled, crucify him. All that's loud is not lasting. And it's also too bad that all is, that is commotion is not consecrated. All that is commotion is not consecrated. For after the triumphal entry, exactly where did Jesus go? Verse 11 tells us he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. All that is commotion is not consecrated. And Jesus entered the temple at Jerusalem after riding down the hill on the colt of the donkey. Why did Jesus go to the temple? Ah, because the temple was the religious heart of the whole nation. There at the temple was where Israel's spiritual pulse could accurately be taken. The temple was the unique window into Israelites' walk with God's quality. Oh, there was great hubbub in the streets, but what was there in the temple? What was going on in the temple when the crowd was yelling, Hosanna? That's what Jesus was interested in. Jesus is interested in your heart and mine. Jesus went to the temple to see what the spiritual heart condition was of the nation. And we'll see exactly what our Lord saw in the temple later in this passage in verses 15 to 17. But for now, it suffice to say that it wasn't good. They had heart disease. They had spiritual heart disease, a hardening of the arteries, a hardening of the heart to the loving of God, the obeying of God, the serving of God. It wasn't good what was found in the temple, which reveals a very sad truth that the Hosannas were more commotion than consecration. Are you a life of commotion, religious commotion, but not a life of consecration to God? I'll leave that with you. 2,000 years ago, our Lord saw the fanfare and that he saw the fanfare was not saving faith. And today, Jesus Christ still sees the fanfare for what it is, loud but not lasting, commotion but not consecration, fanfare but not sharing your faith. The Bible has some pretty sobering words in it, but perhaps none are more sobering than Matthew 7, 21, 
which quotes Jesus as saying, and I quote, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and then your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, end of quote. Could it be that someone here today, Jesus has not yet known because you have not claimed him as Savior? Folks, apparently fanfare can look pretty good to the people around the one doing it. I mean, who of us wouldn't want a neighbor who calls Jesus Lord, a neighbor who prophesies in Jesus' name? Who of us wouldn't want a neighbor who exercises demons in Jesus' name? Who of us wouldn't want a neighbor who does miracles in Jesus' name? Who of us would dare to call such a neighbor evildoer? Because Jesus knows the heart. And Jesus went to the heart of the nation when Jesus went to the temple to see what was going on in the temple. Jesus sees the fanfare. And so please don't play games with Jesus if you've been playing games with Jesus. Christianity is no masquerade. You may fool some of your friends, but you will never trick an all-knowing God. Make certain that your hosannas, your save nows, line up with your heart. Make certain that your commotion leads to consecration. Make certain that saving faith underpins your fanfare. Don't play games with God. There's a third thing which Jesus sees on Palm Sunday. Jesus not only sees the future, Jesus not only sees the fanfare, but third, Jesus Christ sees the fruitlessness, the fruitlessness. We have said that our Lord heads aren't as important to the Lord as hearts. And when Jesus saw the nation in the streets shouting, Hosanna, we have noted that the Lord walked into the J Jerusalem's temple he didn't hold a press conference on the road into Jerusalem. He went straight for the temple because that was the heart of the nation's spirituality. And what he saw in the temple sickened Jesus Christ. He, it's, the text says, he looked around at everything. Jesus always does. He looked around at everything. Nothing escaped his notice or his evaluation. Jesus looked around at everything in that temple that day. Just like Jesus Christ looks at everything in my life. Yours too. Jesus Christ walked into that temple. The text says he looked around at everything. And I add, it sickened him. He saw in that temple evil, duplicity, hypocrisy, greed, exploitation. He came into that temple fresh after he overnighted in Bethany. He came into that temple fresh, looked around and saw everything, and he wasn't pleased. Verse 11, 
And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking all around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Verse 11 reports that Jesus Christ saw everything in the temple. Nowadays, because of verses 15 to 17, we know that our Lord saw buyers back then. He saw sellers back then. He saw money changers back then. He saw merchandise there back then. He saw greed back then. He saw price gouging back then when he came into the temple and his eyes drank in everything. Spiritually fruitless was the nation. They were spiritually barren. And in just five days after seeing the temple, Jesus laid down his life, a volunteer and not a victim. What he saw in that temple, dear friends, he saw there that bucks were valued over the beauty of God. Bucks were valued over the beauty of God. That's a symptom of spiritual fruitlessness. Jesus saw in that temple that rituals overshadowed righteousness. That's a symptom of spiritual fruitlessness. Jesus saw in that temple that prophet-taking forced out praying. That is symptomatic of spiritual fruitlessness as well. Jesus saw in the temple that worldliness was chosen over world missions. That's a symptom of spiritual fruitlessness. Jesus saw all the fruitlessness, and he wanted his men to see it too. So the next morning, the next morning, after overnighting in Bethany, Jesus sees and uses a fig tree. Master teacher was Jesus. It was a fruitless fig tree. And Jesus used it as a visual aid, as the master teacher. The tree was going to help Jesus teach the 12 disciples to make sense of what they were witnessing in the temple just hours later. Now let's go back to 12 to 14 of the account in Mark 11. And on the next day, when they had departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. I imagine they were. I imagine they listened. Are we listening? Normally, a fig tree produces leaves and figs at the same time. To have one is to have the other. If a fig tree has leaves, it should have figs. If it has figs, it should have leaves. That's normal. Normally, a nation called Israel with spiritual advantages like the covenants and the mandate to take salvation to the nations and the Savior in her midst would be spiritually fruitful. Normally. Righteous, normally. Prayerful, normally. Compassionate, normally. Obedient, normally. Trusting God, normally. But when a fig tree has leaves but no fruit, it deserves to be cursed, set aside from fruit production, and that's what Jesus did. And when Jesus has no spiritual advantages but no spiritual fruit in his nation, 
When Israel, as Christ's nation, has no spiritual advantages, but no spiritual fruit, she deserves to be set aside for a time until all of the Gentiles have come in. Like music director Anthon Wallace cited in his remarks before saying, when the Jews had every advantage, the covenants, the temple, the tabernacle, they had every advantage spiritually And yet when Jesus walked into their temple on Palm Sunday, it was a carnival. They deserved to be set aside for a time. Just a time. Now we aren't told everything that the Lord Jesus said in the temple that day, but we are told two things that particularly riled him about the Jews' fruitlessness in the temple. Number one, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Mark it down. The prayerless church is the fruitless church. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Fruitlessness curtails prayer. When you are a prayerless person, you are a fruitless person. The second thing that Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Friends, fruitlessness shuts down world missions. When a Christian loses their burden for the whole wide world to know Christ, then that Christian is a hop, skip, and a jump away from fruitlessness. I know that there could be several Christians within the sound of my voice who are really struggling just to hold all their lives together. And now I'm pointing out that a dynamic prayer life and a growing involvement in world missions are two more expected elements of a fruitful Christian life. And so I can imagine that some of these overextended believers in Jesus Christ are tired. You're frazzled. And you are wondering how to process what I just preached. How can I deepen my prayer life? How can I make more legitimate my concern for world missions? Well, the fact is that no Christian holds anything together, including their own lives. Jesus Christ holds everything together. Colossians 1.17 makes this very clear. He, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, including your life, your family, your marriage, your money. In him all things hold together. So stop trying to hold together your own life. You can't do it. On any helicopter, the top nut is very important. It holds together all the helicopter rotors and gears and blades so it can fly, and they have to be held together constantly and properly, so they function. In the Vietnam War, all of the helicopter mechanics came to call the top nut of the U.S. helicopters the Jesus nut because they knew that that nut held everything together so the helicopter could fly. And we must understand and believe and rely on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one who can hold our lives together. In this dispensation, we Christians are the temples of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God lives in each of us who are born again, and Christ Jesus sees everything which is on 
in the temples of our inner sanctums of our mind and our hearts? What does he see in me? I have to ask that question. What does Jesus see in me? Maybe you could relate and ask the same question. What does Jesus Christ see in me? Maybe you could ask that question. Does Jesus see in me fruit or fruitlessness? Maybe you could ask the question, God, what do you see in me? Fruit or fruitlessness? A life of prayer or a den of robbers? A life of world missions or a den of robbers? Fruit or fruitlessness? Which does Jesus see in me? I must ask the question. And so must you. Jesus sees it when there is fruitlessness. So please don't accept it as your lot in the Christian life. Don't resign yourself to being a lifelong fruitless follower of Jesus. When Joanna was very young, six years old, our daughter, she wouldn't settle for shriveled up tulip bulbs. She demanded full, firm, white tulip bulbs because she insisted on having spring tulips. Don't, se- don't settle for being fruitless. Very quickly, do we have to guess what fruit is? No, we don't. There are five things very quickly that'll be on the screen that the scriptures define as being fruitful. Number one, a developing Christian character. Number two, right conduct. Number three, those we lead to Christ. Number four, verbalized praise. Number five, financial giving to the Lord. All the scriptures are there for you to study. I trust you will. That's what, that's what Jesus defines as fruit. You're a fruitful Christian if those things are in your life and growing. Is that what characterizes my life and yours? I know of a fellow who was saved but not at all fruitful. He got into the world and out of the word for about six years. He thought that he had time to do his own thing before he would marry, have kids, and then return to Christ and the church. And this guy lived for himself and drifted far from a warm and daily relationship with Jesus Christ. And needless to say, this guy's fruit bearing fell off to about zero for those six years. I know this guy pretty well because he was me. He was me. I was that guy. There was a time in my life when I was backslidden and fruitless as a Christian between the ages of 13 and 19, but that wasn't the end of the story. Praise the Lord. Because of God's tremendous grace, I was turned around. God produced fruit in my life again, and I've been having the great privilege of bearing the fruit that he produces in my life for decades since. And how was Rob Elliott, unfruitful Christian, turned around to being fruitful? By Christ moving in by his Holy Spirit, taking control of me and producing the fruit in my life. Go with me to Philippians 1, would you? Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 are quite interesting. 
For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am also to live on in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Only Christ can make anybody fruitful. Only Christ. Our fourth point, our last point in this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday message, Jesus sees to the fruitfulness. Jesus Christ sees to the fruitfulness. That's how you'll be fruitful. By allowing him, by his Holy Spirit, to control you, to empower you, to give you new appetites, new interests, to use your spiritual gifts for the glory of God, Jesus Christ can see to you being fruitful. Why would you want anything else? Jesus Christ sees the future. Jesus Christ sees the fanfare. Jesus Christ sees the fruitlessness. And Jesus Christ sees two fruitfulness in the believers who are yielded to him. Trust that's you. And I trust that's me. Shall we pray? Precious Lord Jesus, we thank you for the timeless truth we find in the inspired record of the triumphal entry. Thank you that you went down that hill, eventually into that city, and that you allowed yourself to be arrested. You allowed yourself to be tried in illegal trials. You allowed yourself to be crucified for us, that we could be forgiven and we could be fruitful in the eyes of heaven. Lord, we pray that we would be to your honor and praise, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, amen. The other uh, communion Sunday, we had to move it to the, ev- to the evening, and so we didn't receive a benevolent fund offering because we wanted to wait till the morning to have the best possible response. So in a moment, the ushers are going to wait upon us, and if you could prayerfully consider giving to the Benevolence Fund, 100% of what you give to the fund will be given to the needy. And also, if you've had time to prayerfully consider putting your faith promise commitment slip, you could place that on the offering plate at the same time. Thank you. We're going to sing.